0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Missy, Guangzhou, China. The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 1, Chapter 12. Some power impart the spear and shield at which the wizard passions fly, by which the giant follies die. Collins Madame Chiron's house stood at a little distance from the city of Toulouse, and was surrounded by extensive gardens, in which Emily, who had risen early, amused herself with wandering before breakfast. From a terrace that extended along the highest part of them was a wide view over Languedoc. On the distant horizon to the south, she discovered the wild summits of the Pyrenees, and her fancy immediately painted the green pastures of Gascony at their feet. Her heart pointed to her peaceful home, to the neighbourhood where Valancourt was, where saint Aubert had been, and her imagination, piercing the veil of distance, brought that home to her eyes in all its interesting and romantic beauty. She experienced an inexpressible pleasure in believing that she beheld the country around it, though no feature could be distinguished, except the retiring chain of the Pyrenees. And inattentive to the scene immediately before her, and to the flight of time, she continued to lean on the window of a pavilion that terminated the terrace, with her eyes fixed on Gascony, and her mind occupied with the interesting ideas which the view of it awakened, till the servant came to tell her breakfast was ready. Her thoughts thus recalled to the surrounding objects, the straight walks, square parterres and artificial fountains of the garden, could not fail, as she passed through it, to appear the worse, opposed to the negligent graces and natural beauties of the grounds of La Vallee, upon which her recollection had been so intensely employed. "'Whither have you been rambling so early?' said Madame Chiron, as her niece entered the breakfast-room. "'I don't approve of these solitary walks.' And Emily was surprised, when having informed her aunt that she had been no further than the gardens she understood these to be included in the reproof i desire you will not walk there again at so early an hour unattended said madame chiron my gardens are very extensive and a young woman who can make assignations by moonlight at la Vallée is not to be trusted to her own inclinations elsewhere Emily, extremely surprised and shocked, had scarcely power to beg an explanation of these words, and when she did, her aunt absolutely refused to give it, though by her severe looks and half-sentences she appeared anxious to impress Emily with the belief that she was well informed of some degrading circumstances of Hucht. Conscious innocence could not prevent a blush from stealing over Emily's cheek. She trembled and looked confusedly under the bold eye of Madame Charonne, who blushed also, but hers was the blush of triumph such as sometimes stains the countenance of a person congratulating himself on the penetration which had taught him to suspect another and who loses both pity for the supposed criminal and indignation of his guilt in the gratification of his own vanity emily not doubting that her aunt's mistake arose from the having observed her ramble in the garden on the night preceding her departure from Lavallée, now mentioned the motive of it, at which Madame Chiron smiled contemptuously, refusing either to accept this explanation or to give her reasons for refusing it. And soon after she concluded the subject by saying, "'I never trust people's assertions. I always judge of them by their actions. But I am willing to try what will be be your behaviour in future.' Emily, less surprised by her aunt's moderation and mysterious silence than by the accusation she had received, Deeply considered the latter, and scarcely doubted that it was Valancourt whom she had seen at night in the gardens of La Vallée, and that he had been observed there by Madame Chiron, who, now passing from one painful topic only to revive another almost equally so, spoke of the situation of her niece's property in the hands of Monsieur Montville. Whilst she thus talked with ostentatious pity of Emily's misfortunes, she failed not to inculcate the duties of humility and gratitude or to render Emily fully sensible of every cruel mortification, who soon perceived that she was to be considered as a dependent, not only by her aunt, but by her aunt's servants. She was now informed that a large party were expected to dinner, on which account Madame Chiron repeated the lesson of the preceding night, concerning her conduct in company, and Emily wished that she might have courage enough to practice it. Her aunt then proceeded to examine the simplicity of her dress, adding that she expected to see her attired with gaiety and haste, after which she condescended to shew Emily the splendour of her chateau, and to point out the particular beauty, or elegance, which she thought distinguished each of her numerous suites of apartments. She then withdrew to her toilet, the throne of her homage, and Emily to her chamber, to unpack her books, and to try to charm her mind by reading till the hour of dressing. When the company arrived, Emily entered the saloon with an air of timidity, which all her efforts could not overcome, and which was increased by the consciousness of Madame Chiron's severe observation. Her morning dress, the mild deduction of her beautiful countenance, and the retiring diffidence of her manner, rendered her a very interesting object to many of the company, among whom she distinguished Signor Montoni and his friend Cavigni, the late visitors at Monsieur Kennel's, who now seemed to converse with Madame Chiron with the familiarity of old acquaintance, and she to attend to them with particular pleasure. This Signor Montoni had an air of conscious superiority, animated by spirit, and strengthened by talents, to which every person seemed involuntarily to yield. The quickness of his perceptions was strikingly expressed on his countenance, yet that countenance could submit implicitly to occasion— and more than once in this day the triumph of art over nature might have been discerned in it. His visage was long, and rather narrow, yet he was called handsome, and it was perhaps the spirit and vigour of his soul, sparkling through his features, that triumphed for him. Emily felt admiration, but not the admiration that leads to esteem, for it was mixed with a degree of fear she knew not exactly wherefore." Cavigny was gay and insinuating as formerly, and though he paid almost incessant attention to Madame Chiron, he found some opportunities of conversing with Emily, to whom he directed at first the sallies of his wit, but now and then assumed an air of tenderness, which she observed and shrunk from. Though she replied but little, the gentleness and sweetness of her manners encouraged him to talk, and she felt relieved when a young lady of the party, who spoke incessantly, obtruded herself on his notice this lady who possessed all the sprightliness of a frenchwoman with all her coquetry affected to understand every subject or rather there was no affectation in the case for never looking beyond the limits of her own ignorance she believed she had nothing to learn she attracted notice from all amused some disgusted others for a moment and was then forgotten this day passed without any material occurrence and emily though amused by the characters she had seen was glad when she could retire to the recollections which had acquired with her the character of duties. A fortnight passed in a round of dissipation and company, and Emily, who attended Madame Sharon in all her visits, was sometimes entertained, but oftener wearied. She was struck by the apparent talents and knowledge displayed in the various conversations she listened to, and it was long before she discovered that the talents were for the most part those of imposture and the knowledge nothing more than was necessary to assist them but what deceived her the most was the air of constant gaiety and good spirits displayed by every visitor and which she supposed to arise from content as constant and from benevolence as ready at length from the overacting of some less accomplished than the others she could perceive that though contentment and benevolence are the only sure sources of cheerfulness The immoderate and feverish animation, usually exhibited in large parties, results partly from an insensibility to the cares, which benevolence must sometimes derive from the sufferings of others, and partly from a desire to display the appearance of that prosperity, which they know will command submission and attention to themselves. Emily's pleasantest hours were passed in the pavilion of the terrace, to which she retired when she could steal from observation with a book to overcome or a lute to indulge her melancholy there as she sat with her eyes fixed on the far-distant pyrenees and her thoughts on Valencore and the beautiful scenes of gascony she would play the sweet and melancholy songs of her native province the popular songs she had listened to from her childhood one evening Having excused herself from accompanying her aunt abroad, she thus withdrew to the pavilion with books and her lute. It was the mild and beautiful evening of a sultry day, and the windows which fronted the west opened upon all the glory of a setting sun. Its rays illuminated with strong splendour the cliffs of the Pyrenees, and touched their snowy tops with a roseate hue, that remained long after the sun had sunk below the horizon and the shades of twilight had stolen over the landscape. Emily touched her lute with that fine, melancholy expression which came from her heart. The pensive hour and the scene, the evening light on the Garonne, that flowed at no great distance, and whose waves, as they passed towards La Valais, she often viewed with a sigh—these united circumstances disposed her mind to tenderness, and her thoughts were with Valancourt, of whom she had heard nothing since her arrival at Toulouse, and now that she was removed from him, and in uncertainty— she perceived all the interest he held in her heart. Before she saw Valancourt, she had never met a mind and taste so accordant with her own. And though Madame Chiron told her much of the arts of dissimulation, and that the elegance and propriety of thought which she so much admired in her lover were assumed for the purpose of pleasing her, she could scarcely doubt their truth. This possibility, however, faint as it was, was sufficient to harass her mind with anxiety, and she found that few conditions are more painful than that of uncertainty as to the merit of a beloved object an uncertainty which she would not have suffered had her confidence in her own opinions been greater she was awakened from her musing by the sound of horses feet along a road that wound under the windows of the pavilion and a gentleman passed on horseback whose resemblance to valancourt in air and figure for the twilight did not permit a view of his features immediately struck her She retired hastily from the lattice, fearing to be seen, yet wishing to observe further, while the stranger passed on without looking up. And when she returned to the lattice, she saw him faintly through the twilight, winding under the high trees that led to Toulouse. This little incident so much disturbed her spirits that the temple and its scenery were no longer interesting to her, and after walking a while on the terrace she returned to the chateau. Madame Chiron, whether she had seen a rival admired, had lost at play— or had witnessed an entertainment more splendid than her own, was returned from her visit with a temper more than usually discomposed, and Emily was glad when the hour arrived, in which she could retire to the solitude of her own apartment. On the following morning she was summoned to Madame Charon, whose countenance was inflamed with resentment, and as Emily advanced she held out a letter to her. "'Do you know this hand?' said she in a severe tone and with a look that was intended to search her heart while emily examined the letter attentively and assured her that she did not do not provoke me said her aunt you do know it confess the truth immediately i insist upon your confessing the truth instantly emily was silent and turned to leave the room but madame called her back oh you are guilty then said she you do know the hand if you was before in doubt of this madame replied emily calmly "'Why did you accuse me of having told a falsehood?' Madame Chiron did not blush, but her niece did, a moment after, when she heard the name of Valancourt. It was not, however, with the consciousness of deserving reproof, for, if she had ever seen his handwriting, the present characters did not bring it to her recollection. "'It is useless to deny it,' said Madame Charon, "'I see in your countenance that you are no stranger to this letter, and I dare say you have received many such from this impertinent young man, without my knowledge, in my own house.' emily shocked at the indelicacy of this accusation still more than by the vulgarity of the former instantly forgot the pride that had imposed silence and endeavoured to vindicate herself from the aspersion but madame Charon was not to be convinced i cannot suppose she resumed that this young man would have taken the liberty to writing to me if you had not encouraged him to do so and i must now you will allow me to remind you madam, said emily timidly of some particulars of a conversation we had at la Valais. "'I then told you truly that I had only not forbade Monsieur Valancourt from addressing my femme.' "'I will not be interrupted,' said Madame Chiron, interrupting her niece. "'I was going to say—' I, "'I have forgot what I was going to say. "'But how happened it that you did not forbid him?' Emily was silent. "'How happened it that you encouraged him to trouble me with this letter? "'A young man that nobody knows, an utter stranger in the place, a young adventurer, no doubt, who is looking out for a good fortune.' however on this point he has mistaken his aim his family was known to my father said emily modestly and without appearing to be sensible of the last sentence oh that is no recommendation at all replied her aunt with her usual readiness upon this topic he took such strange fancies to people he was always judging persons by their countenances and was continually deceived Yet. "'It was but now, madam, that you judged me guilty by my countenance,' said Emily, with a design of reproving Madame Chiron, to which she was induced by this dis- disrespectful mention of her father. "'I called you here,' resumed her aunt, colouring, to tell you that I will not be disturbed in my own house by any letters or visits from young men who may take a fancy to flatter you. This monsieur de Valentine, I think you call him, has the impertinence to beg I will permit him to pay his respects to me. I shall send him a proper answer.' and for you, Emily, I repeat it once for all. If you are not contented to conform to my directions and to my way of life, I shall give up the task of overlooking your conduct. I shall no longer trouble myself with your education, but shall send you to board in a convent. "'Dear Madam,' said Emily, bursting into tears, and overcome by the rude suspicions her aunt had expressed, "'how have I deserved these reproofs?' She could say no more and so very fearful was she of acting with any degree of impropriety in the affair itself, that at the present moment Madame Chiron might perhaps have prevailed with her to bind herself by a promise to renounce Valancourt for ever. Her mind, weakened by her terrors, would no longer suffer her to view him as she had formerly done. She feared the error of her own judgment, not that of Madame Chiron, and feared also that in her former conversation with him at La Valais she had not conducted herself with sufficient reserve." She knew that she did not deserve the coarse suspicions which her aunt had thrown out, but a thousand scruples rose to torment her, such as would never have disturbed the peace of Madame Cheron. Thus rendered anxious to avoid every opportunity of erring, and willing to submit to any restrictions that her aunt should think proper, she expressed an obedience to which Madame Cheron did not give much confidence, and which she seemed to consider as the consequence of either fear or artifice. Well, then said she, promise me that you will neither see this young man nor write to him without my consent. Dear madam, replied Emily, can you suppose I would do either, unknown to you? I don't know what to suppose. There is no knowing how young women will act. It is difficult to place any confidence in them, for they have seldom sense enough to wish for the respect of the world. Alas, madam, said Emily, I am anxious for my own respect. My father taught me the value of that. He said, if I deserved my own esteem, that the world would follow, of course. "'My brother was a good kind of man,' replied Madame Chiron, "'but he did not know the world. "'I am sure I have always felt a proper respect for myself, yet—' She stopped, but she might have added that the world had not always shewn respect to her, and this without impeaching its judgment. "'Well,' resumed Madame Chiron, "'you have not given me the promise, though, that I demand.' emily readily gave it and being then suffered to withdraw she walked in the garden tried to compose her spirits and at length arrived at her favourite pavilion at the end of the terrace where seating herself at one of the embowered windows that opened upon a balcony the stillness and seclusion of the scene allowed her to recollect her thoughts and to arrange them so as to form a clearer judgment of her former conduct she endeavoured to review with exactness all the particulars of her conversation with valancourt at la had the satisfaction to observe nothing that could alarm her delicate pride, and thus to be confirmed in the self-esteem which was so necessary to her peace. Her mind then became tranquil, and she saw Valancourt amiable and intelligent as he had formerly appeared, and Madame Chiron neither one nor the other. The remembrance of her lover, however, brought with it many very painful emotions, for it by no means reconciled her to the thought of resigning him. And Madame Charon, having already shewn how highly she disapproved of the attachment, she foresaw much suffering from the opposition of interests. Yet with all this was mingled a degree of delight, which, in spite of reason, partook of hope. She determined, however, that no consideration should induce her to permit a clandestine correspondence, and to observe in her conversation with Valancourt, should they ever meet again, the same nicety of reserve which had hitherto marked her conduct as she repeated the words, "'Should we ever meet again?' she shrunk, as if this was a circumstance which had never before occurred to her, and tears came to her eyes, which she hastily dried, for she heard footsteps approaching, and then the door of the pavilion opened, and on turning she saw Valancourt. An emotion of mingled pleasure, surprise, and apprehension pressed so suddenly upon her heart as almost to overcome her spirits. The colour left her cheeks, then returned brighter than before, and she was for a moment unable to speak or to rise from her chair. His countenance was the mirror in which she saw her own emotions reflected, and it roused her to self-command. The joy which had animated his features when he entered the pavilion was suddenly repressed. As approaching he perceived her agitation, and in a tremulous voice inquired after her health. Recovered from her first surprise, she answered him with a tempered smile, but a variety of opposite emotions still assailed her heart, and struggled to subdue the mild dignity of her manner. It was difficult to tell which predominated, the joy of seeing Belancourt, or the terror of her aunt's displeasure, when she should hear of this meeting. After some short and embarrassed conversation, she led him into the gardens, and inquired if he had seen Madame Chiron. "'No,' said he, "'I have not yet seen her, for they told me she was engaged, and as soon as I learned that you were in the gardens I came hither.' He paused a moment in great agitation, and then added, "'May I venture to tell you the purport of my visit, without incurring your displeasure, and to hope that you will not accuse me of precipitation in now availing myself of the permission you once gave me of addressing your family?' Emily, who knew not what to reply, was spared from further perplexity, and was sensible only of fear when, on raising her eyes, she saw Madame Charonne turn into the avenue. As the consciousness of innocence returned, this fear was so far dissipated as to permit her to appear tranquil, and instead of avoiding her aunt, she advanced with Valancourt to meet her. The look of haughty and impatient displeasure with which Madame Charonne regarded them made Emily shrink, who understood from a single glance that this meeting was believed to have been more than accidental having mentioned valancourt's name she became again too much agitated to remain with them and returned into the chateau where she awaited long in a state of trembling anxiety the conclusion of the conference she knew not how to account for valancourt's visit to her aunt before he had received the permission he solicited since she was ignorant of a circumstance which would have rendered the request useless even if madame chiron had been inclined to grant it valancourt in the agitation of his spirits had forgotten to date his letter so that it was impossible for madame chiron to return an answer and when he recollected the circumstance he was perhaps not so sorry for the admission as glad of the excuse it allowed him for waiting on her before she could send a refusal madame chiron had a long conversation with Valancourt, and when she returned to the chateau her countenance expressed ill-humour but not the degree of severity which emily had apprehended "'I have dismissed this young man at last,' said she, "'and I hope my house will never again be disturbed by similar visits. "'He assures me that your interview was not preconcerted.' "'Dear madam,' said Emily, in extreme emotion, "'you surely did not ask him the question.' "'Most certainly I did. "'You could not suppose I should be so imprudent as to neglect it.' "'Good God!' exclaimed Emily. "'What an opinion must he form of me, "'since you, madam, could express a suspicion of such ill conduct?' It is of very little consequence what opinion he may form of you, replied her aunt, for I have put an end to the affair. But I believe he will not form a worse opinion of me for my prudent conduct. I let him see that I was not to be trifled with, and that I had more delicacy than to permit any clandestine correspondence to be carried on in my house. Emily had frequently heard Madame Charon use the word delicacy, but she was more usually perplexed to understand how she meant to apply it in this instance. "'in which her whole conduct appeared to merit the very reverse of the term. "'It was very inconsiderate of my brother,' resumed Madame Chiron, "'to leave the trouble of overlooking your conduct to me. "'I wish you was well settled in life. "'But if I find that I am to be further troubled with such visitors as this Monsieur Valincourt, "'I shall place you in a convent at once. "'So,' remember the alternative, "'this young man has the impertinence to own to me—he owns it—that his fortune is very small— and that he is chiefly dependent on an elder brother and on the profession he has chosen he should have concealed these circumstances at least if he expected to succeed with me had he the presumption to suppose i would marry my niece to a person such as he describes himself emily dried her tears when she heard of the candid confession of valancourt and though the circumstances it discovered were afflicting to her hopes his artless conduct gave her a degree of pleasure that overcame every other emotion but she was compelled, even thus early in life, to observe that good sense and noble integrity are not always sufficient to cope with folly and narrow cunning. And her heart was pure enough to allow her, even at this trying moment, to look with more pride on the defeat of the former than with mortification on the conquest of the latter. Madame Chiron pursued her triumph. He has also thought proper to tell me that he will receive his dismission from no person but yourself. This favour, however, I have absolutely refused him, He shall learn that it is quite sufficient that I disapprove him, and I take this opportunity of repeating that if you concert any means of interview unknown to me, you shall leave my house immediately. How little do you know me, madam, that you should think such an injunction necessary, said Emily, trying to suppress her emotion. How little of the dear parents who educated me, chapter twelve A.